Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I can tell you something, people. I know I'm getting old because I have to move my car to the right side of the parking today because I gave Joy in the parking spot. And I have to get right parked my car. And the scariest thing is, I wasn't drinking. I just, I'm getting older and I forget. And I'm sitting there going, where did I park? And, and then because of Joanne, I have to check my zipper to make sure I zipped up. Because for some reason, that's a sign of getting old, people. You forget where you parked your car and you forget to zip your pants up. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but it's true. Joanne's always like, when I leave the house, she goes, did you zip your pants? I go, well, I, I, I think I did. But anyway, it's all right. I'll find my car. It's, it's uh, street parkings today. So I got to figure out where I'm going to go. And it doesn't make a difference. Anyway, we have a great guest today. Uh, he's been in a touring band for years, and he's an amazing drummer. Uh, my, you know, people, my dear friend Rich Redmond, go to check his out product out, uh, drummingintomodernworld.com. Rich uh, recommended Troy to me, and now he's on my show. My guest is Troy Lucetta. How you doing, Troy? Well, I'm doing fantastic, Steve. How are you doing today? Good. Now, you're, you're, you're off the road. Uh, well, we're going to talk about your career, but what's it like, because... You've toured, and your band Tesla's toured for years. What do you, what does a, a drumming and your monster? And I talk to people, and everyone says you're a drumming monster. What does a drumming monster do on his days off? Because you're you've been on tour most of your life. Like what what what, what do you you're, you're you're going out on tour again very soon? Like what what will you do this week when you're at home in Nashville? Well, I'm leaving on Friday. Uh, for Los Angeles to go do a new record for a guy named Mark Benia. Okay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but Mark's got a couple solo records out. Um, he's the music producer, director for Danny Seraphine from the original Chicago. And um, he also was the music director for Keith Emerson. So um, I've been graced with Mark for the last close to 30 years. I did his two first solo albums and he decided he's doing a new solo record, so believe it or not, I got up this morning, he sent me some files yesterday to do some pre-production work, so this the rest of this week, I'm probably going to prepare a bit, because I'll be in the studio with him the following week. So that's probably what I'll do. Part of what else it is that I'm involved with at home is just being home. Uh, I just got home. We've been gone for the last close to six weeks. I've been home for maybe a week. I'm not even sure if it's been that long. Um, but and we start back up with Def Leppard on April 8th through the end of June. So when I come back from Mark, I've got another week at home, and, and I'm back out. So my time gets eaten up so quickly that... I would prefer to be out, you know, working in my garage, cleaning up the house, doing some domestic things, which I've done some of that since I've been home as well. But that's kind of kind of it, you know. I, I, I've been, you know, I, I still try to work. I still try to get up and practice and shed a little bit, um, work on new things, keep things, you know, that drumming monster thing I'm not sure about. <laughs> no, I've, 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 I've watched and I've heard, and I, I, I there's my friend, uh, Nick Sanchez, who listens to the show, said, and he's he's he lives in a uh, Texas or Arkansas. I don't know. He's a friend on Facebook, and he met me through the show. And you're like one of his inspirations. He loves drummers, and, and I get a lot of drummers, but he was like, oh my god, you know, Troy's on. He's and he 
posted a, a video of a love song on my on my on my wall, and he's like said, "Oh my God, this guy's the reason why I started drumming." So you are you are a monster. Well, I, I thank you for that. You know, um, I, I don't fight. You know, I've never felt like that guy. I'm trying to still figure out what it is I do, and I have figured out a few things over the years. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, when you, because I know who the drumming monsters are out there, it just keeps me so humble and keeps me working at things. And, you know, maybe I'm starting to achieve a few things that, you know, and, and those things do happen, you know, over the years when you find yourself showing up in situations and things working out and getting a call back and stuff like that. Um, but, um, yeah, man, I, I just love the drums. I love my life, and Tesla's been together for 30 years. We're touring. Uh, the band just really in a great place right now, and things are really good, and we're extremely blessed 30 years later to still have a career, and um, things are picking up, you know? Who would you say are some of your, who you consider some drumming monsters? Because you're someone who has worked, I mean, it's like you and like, you know, Rich Redman, who I'm, you know, and that's how we got this interview. And Rich is a good friend. And, you know, you guys have been playing forever and you guys have your influences. Who to you, are, are you like an Aronoff guy and a Peace guy? Who do you are some of the people that you consider dr uh, drumming monsters and contemporaries? Uh, you know, yeah, Rich and myself, uh, Kenny Aronoff, those guys you mentioned, of course, uh, they qualify. They're, they're um, very comfortable, uh, you know, in a lot of different settings, you know. And, you know, so being well-diverse helps, uh, and I try to say that as well. Um, my drumming heroes, you know, when I started at a young age, you know, I mean, I was, we're going, I was, you know, it was back in the 70s, you know, so listening to some of the Motown stuff going up, which was my mom's records, you know, so, um, you know, but I was listening to, like, uh, my brother's records. He had, like, Jimi Hendrix Experience. I remember playing that record a lot. Um, so Mitch Mitchell and then John Bonham, of course, and, you know, and I went through my whole Ian Pace. I was a huge Ian Pace fan. So these are the rock drummers of the 70s that I was influenced by. Uh, and there's many, many more, and I could go down a list of them. Uh, there was a drummer by the name of uh, Leonard Hayes from the band y Yesterday and Today when I was like 15, you know, and I was watching what he was doing with the single bass drum, which kind of blew my mind because he was, and I and I remember I, I had picked up a, I had a double bass Red Vista like kit, a drum set, uh, Ludwig's when I was probably, I don't know, 16 something like that, 15, 16 years old. And, uh, and then I remember pulling that second bass drum away after seeing Leonard and, you know, being into the bottom thing. So uh, I kind of went single bass. Um, and then over the years, you know, I got into, you know, I uh, was really interested in, in Jeff Bacall, you know, but I seen Jeff when he, not with, through Toto, it might, it was through Boss Gags, you know, through... Six Degrees, you know, that was a record that I burned out, you know, with Lido, uh, Shuffle, and so many great, great grooves and songs, and then, you know, the Toto thing I went through, of course, got into that, and, uh, you know, Steely Dan, and 
And then as I was progressing, and as I would become a band of the 80s, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on in the 80s because I was still kind of stuck on Mark Craney, big brother, you know, brother to brother, Gino Vernelli. So I was influenced by a, a wide variety of players, you know, Steve Gadd being one of my ultimate drum heroes for sure. He's probably the guy that I would, say today that, uh, you know, Steve Perrone, I mean, these, these are guys, you know, you know, that, that kind of follow, you know, Cole Stubblefield, all those guys, you know, Bernard Purdy, you know, so those are the things that I continue to be influenced by. Um, then you have the whole thing that happened with, you know, the double bass drumming and that whole side of it, which I've never really done a lot of that. Um, but, um, my thing has always been just geared towards, you know, supporting songs and playing for the song and finding myself and making sure I'm not just playing a bunch of chops that have nothing to do with the music, but, but I would like to have the ability to do that, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, you had all these influences, but what made you pick up the sticks as a kid? Cause you know, I, I know, you know, I don't know, I, I know you're from California and I know, uh, Everyone has musical influences. Like, I played the trombone when I was a little kid. It wasn't good, but I played the trombone. My brother played the drums. My sister played the French horn and the, and the, and the cello because uh, my dad played sax. And and for us, you know, our school encouraged musical uh, musical instruments. What made you pick up the sticks? As I mean, and, and how old were you when you picked up the sticks? And, and when you picked up the sticks, did you ever think that this... this inclination as a kid would end up being your whole career? Well, a few questions in there. I'll start with uh, what happened. I was, I'm going to say maybe nine or ten, I don't know, maybe maybe it was even really somewhere around in there, I, I think. Um, a friend of mine, two to my uh, friends at the time, grabbed me and they they said hey come on we gotta we want you to check this out and they brought me into this garage and there was just a snare drum on a stand and they were standing around the drum and they were looking at me and i'm still the three of us are standing around the snare drum on a stand and they had a pair of spoons in their hand and they looked at me and they go we know you want to play drums you know and, and they handed me the spoons and I, I just put the spoons in my hand and I played Wipeout. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and, and because I had heard Wipeout so much and I used to play it with my hands. It's hard. I just, I just played it and it was Wipeout, you know. And, and I remember looking at them and their eyes got really big, you know. They looked at me like in awe, kind of like, wow, how cool kind of thing, you know. And I was kind of in awe of myself too. I was like, that was like the coolest thing that could happen to me. And right then and there, man, it was done. Uh, I, and and I, I had a paper route, and I've always been very obsessive with things. Um, so I had three of them. <laughs> uh, so I could buy a drum set, and I did. And I bought my first kit, uh, about $55. It was a Crest set of drums, or a Marine Pearl. Um, and... I had those drums and, and I just jumped right in at probably about 10, 11 years old. And um, 
I started playing the records, and, and I, I'm totally self-taught. Um, I had people I had gotten together with over the years and studied with. I had a friend of mine named Steve Bellino as I would progress into my late teens, and then he would take me through Ted Reed's Incubation book, and I started reading, and never, I'm not a sight reader, but, you know, I can read. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I never, but I never went to like Berkeley or anything. And, and at 17, I moved to Memphis and I was playing music out there. <clears throat> and by the time I was 22, 21, I joined the Eric Martin band, which we signed to Electra Records and made my first record, uh, toured with Journey. We were the same management team and we, you know, we did American Bandstand and I was young enough to experience, uh, things that really solidified the fact that I, I really wanted to stick with it and I knew that I wanted to be in a band as opposed to being a hired gun. Okay. So <clears throat> that's been my pursuit and still feel the day I picked those spoons up, you know. I, I've been in there shedding on this stuff. Mark sends me stuff that's kind of challenging sometimes that i got to figure out and then I've got to figure out these grooves and take them and get really comfortable with them and you know, break them inside out, you know, and just, you know, just kind of shed on these things and get a feel for it so you can really own it, you know. <clears throat> and, um, but so, yeah, man, I absolutely uh, did not know, uh, you know, speaking of the future, 30 years later that I would be with doing this, making the living that I'm making, and, and music is my life, you know, and it's what I do. What you know, what what made you move to Memphis at seventeen? I mean, that, that's such a uh, a big move. Did your family move, or did you, did you just leave on your own? I mean, it, and and why Memphis? Well, what happened was I had this friend of mine. His brother lived out there and offered him a job, and he was a singer that I was um, playing with, and he moved the band out there and said, "Hey, why don't you come out? Why do you want me to come?" And um, I was like, well, I wasn't doing well in school, um, quite honestly. You know, I had uh, my younger years, kind of, you know, it's amazing how we can get hooked up in situations just trying to fit in. And that's really what I was trying to do, just kind of fit in, trying to find myself as a kid. And I found myself in a situation where I ran around with some guys and, ended up in juvenile hall um, at 15 for a couple few weeks. I uh, made the mistake of jumping in a car, stolen car, while they were joyriding. And um, so that was a bad idea. <laughs> and uh, I got out and I was on probation. I started playing my drums and I put all that behind me, but schooling wasn't going well and parents had divorced and so I thought well I had this opportunity so I took it uh, and I went and I wanted to play music and it was a great it was a good thing for me to do um, and, and that's what brought me to Memphis you know I was out there for about six months and we were playing and you know I ended up coming back to California where I lived but uh, that's how I ended up there now you, you say you, you play with Eric Martin was Eric Martin was he from is he from L.A. Guns or is he from Mr. Big? He's a singer for the band Mr. Big. Okay, so you play with him, and then now, how did you hook up with the guys from Tesla? 
And as and, and I always it always amazes me because you know it's not like now you know we can do anything on the internet. Back then, you know you you couldn't you couldn't just post, hey, we're looking for a singer. You know, it's like I'm 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 moving, so I'm selling some stuff off. I can just go on the Facebook uh, marketplace and go selling a daybed, 125, and you could do it like that. How did you guys, How did you meet those guys? And were you looking to join a band? when you hooked up with them? Well, uh, like I said, I found out a few things. Um, what happened was Eric Martin, after the first record on Electra, we weren't getting picked up for the second record. Herbie Herbert, who managed Journey, continued to manage Eric, took him on a solo route. And I knew that was happening, so the writing was kind of on the wall. And um, I drove home and later that week I, I guess it had been in there was a magazine called Band Magazine the Bay Area Music Magazine that you know let people know that we were breaking up and I so I got a phone call from this guy named Dwayne Hitchings and Dwayne had a big hit with Betty Davis Eyes, Kim Carnes and he was uh, he had a song on the charts uh, with Rod Stewart Passion, he was, he was with Carmine I think it was Cactus he was in uh, was it Cactus or one of those bands Carmine had um it's been a while now, I forgot, but um, any rate, he was over Eddie Money's house, which was in Oakland, California, and, and we were out doing some dates with Eddie, so when he called me from Eddie's house, he goes, hey, I'm producing this new band I'd like you to check out, and, uh, and I was in San Leandro, which was 15, 20 minutes for him, so he jumped in his car, and he drove over to my house, and played me this demo that he did on an eight track with the drum machine they had two songs and i heard jeff's voice i heard the songs and i thought wow this is interesting i thought jeff had a really unique voice you know and that that's what led me to sacramento to kind of audition with the band they wanted me in the band even before i was in the they kind of knew they wanted me but i didn't know you know, I was a hundred miles away if Sacramento looked from where I was. So I was still young enough, you know, twenty four years old, coming off of the Eric Martin band to you know, I, I made a decision because he mentioned he says, you know, Eddie Money Eagles had asked about you, so if it doesn't work out and you don't want to take this thing, you know, you can always go check out the Eddie thing. Well, Gary Ferguson was playing with Eddie Money at the time and he did a record called No Control, great record. Great drummer too. And uh, and I knew Jerry, and you know, from being out there, and uh, I kind of knew what was going on. I knew it was a salary gig, and I knew that if I did something like that, and it wasn't clear to me, uh, you know, whether it was right for me or not. But I did know that I wanted to be in a band, and it was a situation where if I joined and had an opportunity to do the Eddie Money thing, then I would be down the road looking for another gig and I, I man that's I was like man I want to be the band you know so I went and checked them out and watched them play and um, they were playing and they had a drummer at the time they were called City Kid before it was Tesla and I went to Sacramento and, I, and then the second night I had uh, went back and that's kind of when I made my decision when I was on the dance floor watching the band and I kind of singled everybody out and I once Jeff had, I singled, I went to Jeff and started watching her singer. He had my attention the rest of the night. Right then I was done. I was like, you know what? I never even looked at anybody else after I started paying attention to him. 
And I thought, man, if he could do this with me, he could probably do this anywhere because he had all of me, you know what I mean? And, and he's still that way to this day. And, and, and then that's really what brought me to Sacramento and, and led me to to uh, join the band. So you joined the band, and now how do you get to the point I mean, it's 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 a weird question, and it's I mean we'll talk about it more. But you know, you joined a band, and how do you get to the point where you've sustained for thirty years? When you joined a band, what are your and you guys were in Sacramento? What are your guys like your marketing focus? What is what are you, what are your goals as young guys in a band? And you're you're very happy with uh, who you're involved with. You know, you said the, the singer you could take your eyes off him. What are your guys' plans like when? As when you guys first started out, what did you what did you want to do? I mean, besides you were young and were fearless, and you want to take over the world. But what were your realistic expectations? Well, I mean, the funny thing was when I watched the, when I seen the band, it was really clear to me with what was going on musically with the bands that were out and the genre that we were going to be in. And at that time, I remember "Come Feel the Noise," "Quiet Riot," Frankie Benelli. I remember the Motley thing being pretty prevalent, Rat, and, and those kinds of bands. Uh, and, and and for me, I wasn't listening to any of those records. Um, but I thought, when I seen Tesla, I thought, you know, I, I it was clear to me that the only thing that needed to happen, and, and, and this is not a cocky move, uh, on, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but I knew that if I joined that band, I knew that I was the answer to them, and I knew that we would do exactly what we were going to do, and within nine months, we had a record deal with Geffen Records. And and it was, it was the plan. It was just that simple. This is what we were going to do, and the only thing they needed was me at the time, as I could see it, and I was the missing link to that puzzle because I felt it was there. And I had a little bit of experience enough to where I had been, you know, played a lot, a lot of cool and different things. But, you know, now I had some recording experience. I did some touring. I did a little bit of it. So I had that that I could bring. And I thought, that, you know, if I could just get in there and develop that with the band. And I, and I just became part of that band. And we worked 10, 12 hours a day, five minimum to six days a week. Plus playing on weekends, we, I mean, we we didn't we were relentless. I mean, we just we knew what we wanted. And there was nothing stopping us from getting it, you know. And we had a manager that could get us in front of people and got us to showcase. And we were opening for Ron Keel at the Country Club in Los Angeles, and that's when we were seen by a woman named Teresa Ensignat with Tom Zutat, who signed Motley and Guns N' Roses, and. You know, uh, it's like Tesla and Dokken and those bands back then. And, you know, and I, I just really believed that we were going to do exactly what we did. Uh, what I did not know is it would be 30 years later. So, so you get noticed, you get recognized, you get signed. So what is it like? Because, I mean, it sounds like you guys were playing just gigs. What is it like going into the studio? And then that whole, what was that whole scene like back then? Because it was... You know that was a wonderful scene, the, the metal scene. I mean, I was in New Jersey, but we and we had our own branch out there with Cinderella and Britney Fox and Joby and all that. You know, but what was it like when you guys got signed and you had to start recording albums? And what's it like going from B 
being, you know, playing, as you said, at a country club to making records. Well, you know what was, you know what's so cool about then and that era, and it sounds like you could probably relate, you know, it sounds like listening to the bands that you had just mentioned that see, we were West Coast and now we're going to we get signed and now we're gonna go to Woodstock, New New York, Upper State New York to record at Woodstock, uh, Bearsville Studios. And so the producer, Michael Barbiero and Steve Thompson, we're going to jump into pre-production. They come out. We do some pre-pro. Now we're going to go make a record. We're going to make our debut record. And I knew that we were doing something different than everybody else uh, in the sense that just, you know, we weren't coming from a glam side of things. We were just coming from the music side of things of writing songs. Really focused on uh, just, you know, and there weren't a lot of limits. We, we wrote a lot, a lot of music and a lot of different stuff, and we figured out who we weren't. And that was important. But, um, but when we got in the studio, we started working, and things started coming together. <clears throat> you know, I remember being done with the first album going, and I felt a little, you know, I don't even know that I was happy with it. Um, it's, it's interesting, you know, it goes, and it, it probably was, but sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees. Is that the same? <laughs> um, and, but, you know, coming back later, I realized what that record was and, and how it affected, how it changed things at that time, you know, when we, when we came out, but. I hope I, I don't know if I got sidetracked and <laughs> lost the question here if I even answered it or not. No, no, you, um, you did, but it was just, it was like, you know, you went away. So you, you guys are in the studio and then all of a sudden, you know, you're making an album. I mean, that must be a very, yeah, and you guys were young. Was, that must be a very amazing experience. It was, it was, it was really amazing because I believed what was, what was getting ready to happen Everything that happened, I expected that. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where it was something in my gut that I just knew there was no, it was, it was like, well, of course this was happening. This is the way it's supposed to happen. <laughs> um, but I, I, it was something, I don't know. It's like, you know, people will talk about, are you familiar with the secret? The, uh, it's a book. Yeah, it's like the power of positive thinking. Right, and, yeah. You know, that whole thing, you know, and just seeing something before it happens and, you know, and I just, I, I seen that. I really felt all of that. We were doing everything right to be positioned and get in that place. And as things came together, Oh, then we signed with Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch, Q Prime Management. They managed Metallica, they managed Def Leppard, they managed Dokken, they had, you know, and, and Queensryche, and now they managed us, Tesla. And, you know, so when all that happened, it was just like, well, of course this is going to happen. We're going to end up on a big tour. We're gonna, This is going to happen. We're going to get back. We're going to get on the radio. You know, it was just, but I, 
you know, I couldn't say that today, man. Looking back, I don't know. It was really, it's interesting, you know, thinking about where things are at today and how different things were. And you know, I was again, I was in my early twenties, you know, my my mid twenties, and that was happening. So um, it was just something I believed in, you know, just something I believed in, man. I just believed it was going to happen the way it did, you know. Now, now, how, how did you come up with the band name? Because I know you originally called City Kid. Is that, is that true? Great, great question, yeah. This is a great story. You'll like this. Okay. <laughs> so our manager that I just mentioned, Cliff Bernstein, right? He he was the one uh, that came to the band. Well, first of all, let me back up. We go into, we go into record in the Bearsville Studios. The band's still City Kid, right? We don't have a name. But we're making this record, so we know we have to change the name. So back then, we're, I was in the, we were, the pretenders were in the studio with us at the same time. So it was so cool because Chrissy Hine came out, and I was in, I was in the, uh, the lounge. And I just got done smoking some pot. You know, I was probably, I took a couple of hits off a joint and man, I was flying, you know, and I was like, the last thing I wanted to do was talk to anybody. But I'm 20, this is for the record, I'm 23 years sober, okay? <laughs> um, uh, so just FYI. But before I got sober, uh, and it's my first record, I'm, you know, and, and here I'm, Chrissy comes out, and I know I'm sitting there, and I just look stoned out of my head, this kid, right? And she's like, hey, and she starts talking to me. And starts asking me all these questions. Then she's like, hey, you want to come hear my new album? And I really didn't want to go in there and hear the new record. I just want to go climb under a rock somewhere, you know? And, uh, and, and my bass player was walking down the hallway, and I'm walking, and she's dragging me into the studio. And I'm like, come on, Brian, come with me, come with me. You know, so Brian and I go in there. We sit. And she's she was so amazing, man. She sat there and played probably about seven songs off the new record. Then she starts asking questions about the band. What's the name of the band? Well, we don't really have a name. And she picks up a newspaper. She starts reading all this stuff down. She came up with she got a hundred names while we were there. And the way she did it was so brilliant. The way she just addressed what a sharp, sharp, amazing woman oh my god i was so blown away and it was such a neat time but what happened was so i had that experience right we don't have the name now cliff bernstein comes out to hear some of our stuff while we're recording the record and he sits the band down in the control room he says look he says have you guys ever heard of this guy named nikola tesla we no first of all he's no i think he said no that's right he goes how about Tesla. And we're like, Tesla? What's a Tesla? And then he tells us the story about Nikola Tesla. How he was the father of our world system of AC power and, you know, he was the guy. And we're like, how come we don't know about this guy? So anyway, that was how we got introduced to Tesla. And from my understanding, Tom Zutat, who signed us, to get and it turned um, Cliff on the Tesla. So, Interesting enough, that's how we became Tesla. Then we did the research about him. 
Because there's, remember, there was no Tesla car. There was, I mean, Tesla's just now getting his, his due, so to speak. What is that like? What is that like? What is that like for you now? Like, because when people Google Tesla, they're going to get the car, not the band. And I mean, that must irritate you a little bit because you guys were innovators of the following of Tesla. No, 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 no. We're not uh, irritated at all by it. No. Uh, The thing about it is, is what's irritating is when you go into Smithsonian American history. And, and Tesla was an American citizen. He got a citizenship. You know, he's from Yugoslavia. Back in the late 1800s when he came, he went to work for Edison. And he did all this work for Edison and perfected these dynamos and did all this stuff, left the Edison company, and, you know, he developed the alternating current motor. So that's what led us to, you know, our AC power. So, but what happened was, um, at that time, When I went into the Smithsonian Institute, I went to the Smithsonian, and, and there's a whole story, and I, I, I don't, I don't know how far I should go into all of this, but we had received this letter from the third grade uh, teacher by the name of John Wagner back in 1987 when the brand came out. He was commissioning this bust, a Nikola Tesla that he wanted to donate to the Smithsonian. Him and his third grade students, so they were having bake sales and blah 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 blah. We, I answered the letter. They needed about $6,500. So I go to Tesla, the band. I said, look, man, how about we pay for this thing and they're going to donate it to Smithsonian, blah, 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 blah. That was the story I had. So, you know, we did. We paid for it. And there was a book called Man at a Time, and the author was Margaret Cheney and uh, this guy Leland Anderson. So remember, we're just still getting familiar with who Tesla is, and now we're like, hey, cool, maybe we can offer something, right? Well, what happened was... The Smithsonian wanted nothing to do with the bust. They had a bust of Marconi. Now, Marconi and the whole electricity section at that time was all Edison. Not one word mentioned the Tesla. I went in there. I seen it. It was very disappointing. Uh, but what I learned is there was a curator there by the name of Barney Finn. And John Wagner, the teacher, was communicating with him. And John was always kind of throwing rocks his way and not too happy with this guy because of what they weren't doing. And so I politically kind of, I call the guy up, say, hey, what's up? You know, introduce myself. And hey, you know, I'd like to come down to the museum. And then I win. And then they also, the other deciding factor, which was a problem and still is to this day, is Marconi is the father of radio, right? Right. What do you think? Right? No, he's not. He was an understudy of Tesla's. Our, re- our second record is called The Great Radio Controversy, which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled Marconi's patents invalid because Tesla had already transmitted two years prior. Wow. So okay, you- six months after Tesla died. And to this day, have they acknowledged him in there? No. And I was just in the Smithsonian recently, and they had a little thing on the wall about Tesla. The whole thing... So... They're politically staying correct, but I called the curator up, and I was going back. I petitioned them. I went out and started signing autograph signatures in front of Tesla concerts for, God, for a couple of years. See, I collected 60,000 signatures, but it didn't do any good. I did some news, did some things, and at any rate, that was disappointing, okay? What's cool about the Tesla Motors is people are starting to find out a little bit more about Tesla. What's cool is Elon Musk, for Tesla Motors, he 
walks around with our shirt on. <laughs> you know, he's got a he's got Tesla the band. He's flying our colors. You know what I mean? See, that's awesome. So, that, that's that's such advertisement too. It, it must be great. Well, it's cool. You know, so there's a whole thing, and I'm building a website. It's TroyLaquetta.net. Um, it's not. Well, I haven't even made it public, but now there we go. We're, we're just going to let people check it out. They can see what we're doing. My wife today is working. She's doing my website. And we're doing a whole thing on Nikola Tesla, too. So that's going to end up with our... I think that's what we're working on today, part of it. I have so much work to do on this thing. I haven't had a website in God knows, I don't know how many, 10, 15 years. I don't know what it's been. It's just been, I haven't done it. I had no interest. I didn't even... I never had an interest in doing a, a lot of things. I've just been kind of behind the scenes doing what it is that I'm doing. But now, now I do interest because of Rich Redmond. God bless him. I love that man so much. Isn't he? Isn't he uh, a go getter, man? That guy. That guy had so much crap going on. I mean, I, I I help him with his PR, and he has like, he's a, the guy's a whirlwind. I don't. He must sleep like three hours uh, a night. Well, he Rich, you know, for me, he's my hero, and I tell him that he is, man. That guy, I absolutely love what he brings, what he's done for Nashville with the drummers weekends the things that i have learned through him the people that i have met like yourself he is i mean he he's awesome man i just i just love that guy can't say enough great things about rich but it was him who we were staying in austin together we were at the percussus arts society at PASIC, and uh he 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 said troy you know nobody knows about you man you need to have a Facebook page, do this and that. And I said, well, I, and I didn't have any interest in it. I really didn't. I said, okay. So I kind of used his guide. I started posting. And I figured out how lame I was at that. <laughs> I wasn't posting much. And, you know, and I'm still just kind of hit and miss with it. But I'm kind of a slow burn. But I got to credit Rich because because of what he put that bug in. I, 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 I'm letting people know. I, I'm putting, you know, I, if you had a chance to look at my website, you probably learned that I, did a lot of things you might not have known about and that's what he was saying he said you know you got to let people know what you're doing so that, that's kind of kind of where that, that that's coming from but um yeah there's what are so what are out there. what are some of the things you've done that people don't know about well there's a lot of things I, I've uh, done that people don't know about me first of all some people are just going, wow, Tesla's still together <laughs> 30 years later, right? There's that. Uh, we're still making records. Um, the, the, my, the stuff that I really love to play is, is not just rock and roll based, you know? I love Latin music. I love jazz music. I love soul funk. I love R&B. I love, you know, I love, I just love music, you know? And, so you probably wouldn't picture me on a Doris Day record, but I'm on her last record, and I'm playing Brushes. Uh, you know, I did an R&B record with Frida Payne, which is back in 01. People don't know about it because I never really promoted it, but I got it on my website now. And you can listen to a track or two. You hear the Doris Day track, and then you can hear, like, Frida Payne, and you hear me playing R&B stuff, and you're never going to know it's me. And then I'll be playing, you know, um, Keith Emerson, you know, I went and recorded a couple of few years back. God bless him. You know, I was supposed to go last year before his death, a week before rehearsal. We were going to Japan. We had eight sold out shows in Japan. And um, prior to that, I went and recorded in Germany with him with a 70 piece orchestra. And we recorded all that old EOP stuff. 
Um, you know, so those are things that people don't know about me. You know, Whitford St. Holmes, Brad Whitford, Tamaro Smith, and um, Derek St. Holmes. I did their last record and went and did some bits, you know, with them. And uh, and I'm here doing country, some country records, and some of them. There's a lot of just B stuff here because the A stuff's they got their A-list guys, but I'm not trying to like do all these things. They just kind of come up, but I've done, you know, a lot of things and, I, and I've recorded and worked with a lot of different people and, you know, it's just been a huge blessing, but these are the things that people probably don't know about me, I'm guessing, you know, because they just kind of relate me to Tesla, but um, the fact is uh, I love drumming, I love music, um, you know, and... And, and, and the thing about my drum heroes, you know, my drum monsters, as you would put it, is because I spent time listening to those guys when I do these other things, some of those influences come out because I've had a chance to shed and work on these different things. And I've always just focused on pocket playing, man. That's really my interest more than anything. Um, you know, the Keith Emerson thing was a, definitely a stretch, you know, because... That, that was wild, you know, I'm in another country in an ISO booth with a 70-piece orchestra, and that's a lot of pressure, you know. Um, but, you know, I mean, God is good. That's all I can say, man. Now, um, but, okay. Now, now, you said you've been sober for uh, 23 years. What what made you decide to get sober and was just being on the road, and I'm sure in the 80s, late 80s, being in, in, a, in a rock and roll band must have been debauchery and decadence what made you decide to get sober well because you just said it <laughs> um it was that uh it was that yeah i mean back then you know you got to remember we're our mid-20s the, i'm the oldest guy in the band frank was 17 years old our guitar player brian was 19 these guys are not even 21 you know our singer jeff he's my age but point being they were young man and living the dream and out of the gate you know and there was some it was all out there you know and you know so while we were touring of course we were partying and we were just hanging out doing what everybody else was doing and when you're doing that sometimes it gets you into trouble i did not know that i would end up with a drug problem I didn't know that I was even a drug addict alcoholic. I had no idea. I wasn't doing anything different than anybody else. And but what I've come to find out and what brought me to realization that I had a problem that I needed to deal with it was the fact that we were headlining arenas in 90, 91. I got sober in November 91. Well, you're like, well, if you're sober November 91, how come you're not, like, you know, 25 years sober? Well, because 18 months into it, I relapsed for one night. Two nights, actually. One night. Which, so my sobriety date the 4th of July of 93. So when I went into treatment November 91, but what happened was we were headlining arenas, and I was freaking miserable. And I was like, a buddy of mine, said to me, he said, man, I care about you and I love you and I want you to do me a favor and just answer this questionnaire and it was called, am I an addict? And I didn't know anything about being an addict or any of that stuff and I never would have 
thank God he put that thing in front of me because I just thought I was doing what everybody else was doing. I guess I could have went around the rest of my life like that, not thinking I was doing anything different, but I didn't realize I had a problem, you know, but I, I looked at it. I answered the questions on it. Everything was pretty much yes. We only needed three, <laughs> evidently, <laughs> but I didn't, I mean, that was hard to accept the fact, but then I, now I have this information. Now I got to deal with it. So I'm trying to deal with it. And I, and I kept relapsing. And uh, so we had a five week break. We came off the road and then we were going to New Year's. We were, so November 91, I checked myself into rehab. I didn't tell anybody. I called that guy Cliff Bernstein, who gave us the Tesla name, our manager, told him what I was doing. I didn't, didn't tell the band. I didn't tell nobody what was going. I just went and checked myself in because I had that monkey on my back. And I had everything. Like I said, we, it was a high bottom. They call it a high bottom drunk or whatever. But, you know, you've got everything. Yeah, I didn't lose everything, thank God. And I was able to keep it because I did get sober. But I would have lost it, I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, I went into treatment for 30 days. I came out nine days later. We were playing Tokyo Dome with Metallica New Year's Eve. 55,000 people, you know. And so I, I had started my journey when I had gotten out there. And I just started going to these meetings. And I said, and that's how I got sober. And I just kind of, you know, I stuck with it, you know, and told myself if I couldn't remain sober, then I couldn't do this anymore. What is it like being in a band and, you know, the 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 genre that you were associated with, even though you guys weren't glam metal, but you guys were in that same time and that thing. What was it like touring because there must have been temptations, and one, you guys were a very big band with a loyal following. There must have been people sitting there offering you. I mean, how do you turn down a drink and, and, and not feel like you're insulting somebody? Um, hang on one second. Um, sorry about the wait. Um, well, you know, the thing about it is, God, that's a great question. Yeah, you really have some really wonderful questions, by the way. Thank you. I, um, I, I, just, I just run with it. I do my research and I run with it. And I, I, I just, I feel, I just feel the interview out. But thank you. I appreciate you it. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever talked about a lot of this stuff. And I love talking about it. I don't have a problem with it at all because I am sober. Uh, you know, that was the thing that was challenging, and I've learned so much since then. You know, first of all, I check into rehab. I go, I, I get out, I go play the show with Metallica. I get out of there before New Year's because I don't want to be around anybody or anything. And the band, I have not told anybody. Nobody knows anything. It wasn't until another 60, 90 days later when we were going out, getting ready to go out for another 12, 15 months, touring that I sat down and talked to the band about what was going on with me and what happened and, and they thought it was great you know but uh, what happens is they think it's great and then they lose they lose I didn't want to become alienated you know what I mean so that question you pose is so great because I already was aware of that was going that this could be a problem 
and I got to I don't want to lose my friend and become this other guy and but I had to tell them that hey you know I had this problem I checked into a rehab and blah 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 man if you guys could just like do all your partying in the front lounge or the back lounge or if I just have a place to escape that would be great and they're like cool you know we'll try to help you out and support you that lasted for god if it lasted for a week I would be surprised so I hung out in my bunk I'd go do things they would be still going out and so when they would go out I would make it a point to go to the bar with them and hang out but once I started getting uncomfortable I just check out you know but the fact that I kept showing up and then I drink coffee so uh, and I smoke so I just I just didn't want to feel different because I already did feel different. Um, so I made it a point to get connected as much as I could with them. But um, they were happy because they knew me and they and I think they really were pretty proud of me and to this day I you know, I think it's probably more evident. And by the way, there hasn't been an ounce of alcohol on a Tesla tour since '04. Not one drug, not one drink, not one beer backstage. So everybody got sober, or just nope. just nope. just nope. when you're nope. performing, they, they just kind of figured it out. Because I never preached to the band. I never said anything. I just did my own thing. I just they, at one time they just decided that it was becoming a problem on the road, and we needed to be a business. And you can't go to work and drink, so why should you be able to come out here and drink? Right, that, that's such and, a good point, because people, I, I used to do stand-up comedy, and believe me, I like to drink and do all that stuff, but I was, my thing was, I would never, before I went on stage, I would never have a drink, and people, I know comics who would get hammered, and they go, why don't you, you do a shot with me? I'm like, when I get done my set, I will have a drink with you, but you're right, it is our job, and people, for some reason, people don't connect that. Like sitting there going, you know, you're a drummer for a popular major band. You go to work to play the drums. And it's so funny. People think that musicians can just, and comics or anyone performing, can just get hammered before they go to work. And it's like, no, because you're doing a job. And that's what always cracks me up, especially with musicians. It's like, oh, man, you know, people always go, oh, you know, they, they, they do two things. Oh, man, that guy was hammered. He was great. Or he was hammered. You know, took away from the show. But they expect a musician to be a partier. Well, you know, they, you know, yeah. And it was almost a prerequisite back in the day when we were doing what we were doing. It was like, you know, you don't even want to tell somebody you don't party, right? But then I would meet these guys that didn't party. And, and they had it together and... and you know, and, and you're right, they didn't quite fit in, you know, uh, and and I noticed that, but but I did, I was attracted to that as well, but yeah, it's, um, it, you know, again, I was lucky enough to be at the top of the mountain, you know, the bank account was full, we're selling millions of records, we're touring, we're headlining arenas now, and uh, and now you're like, wow, you got a problem and you realize that you're empty and once you figure out why you know then then you start your journey man and that's that's a that's a heck of a place to be man 
Now, for you, you've been sober for years. Your band has been around for years. What is it like for you now when you meet fans who have followed you for 30 years? I mean, you know, I'm 52, and I think, you know, 30 years ago, I was graduating college. But, you know, I've listened to your music, and, and what what is, I mean, what is it like for you when you meet someone who sits there and, you know, who was 18 when they started listening to you, and now they have kids, and now your band, when you guys play, they probably bring their kids. What kind of feeling is that? It's the most amazing feeling in the world, man. It is. It's like having a grandson, because, which I do, and uh, the thing about it is, is these young kids show up, it blows me away. I see these kids, they're not even 10 sometimes, and they're singing our songs. And I'm like, that just trips me out, man. It's like there's a whole new generation of people that are discovering the music, you know? And uh, and, and with our fans that are older and they come and they do bring their kids or they found out through their mom or, or, you know, I just see teenage girls out there and they're just, you know, it blows my mind. I'm like, they're singing all the words the love song what you get they know all these songs they know the songs they like and you got the guys out there rocking out the modern day cowboy you know the heavier stuff but it's 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 a beautiful feeling man uh 30 years later i never would have uh, imagined that it would be like it is you know and to experience it and be fully present is is really a gift what 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 do you think made you guys stay together? Well, we did break up. We did break up in right. um, 96. After being on the road from 86 to 96, 10-year run, really hard touring. I mean, 15 months, come home, make a record, go out for another 15 months. These were all world tours back then, you know. So you do Japan, you do Canada, you do Europe, and you do the U.S. So after that hardcore touring in the first 10 years, we broke up because one of our members, uh, Tommy, who's not with us today, we have four original out of five guys. So we lost Tommy because he was messed up and didn't figure it out. Uh, and we became a four piece in 95, 96 when we broke up. It was just, we were out there as a four piece without him. And so we took a break. Um, grunge music had come in and we just took a wet, took a break. And it wasn't until October of 2000 when we got back together. And that was just on a fluke. And, you know, the break was wonderful. I started a roofing company. I had 10 employees. I mean, I loved it. I wasn't playing. I had a couple of cool things that happened. You know, did the John Cooper Mellencamp audition. I had an offer for Joe Satriani, uh, which I ended up uh, passing on the audition because I came off the uh, audition with 16 drummers on Mellencamp. And I thought, man, I'm, that was a great thing, by the way. But I was like, well, I'm not going to do that again. If somebody wants to hire me, they can hire me. And when Mick Brigden, Satriani's manager, called me, it was two weeks later after I came off. Before I made a decision before, I had just come off of um, the Nolan Camp audition, and then I said, no, nah, I'm not interested. He said, how come? I said, well, because I just did the cattle call. I'm not, he goes, no, it's just you and one other guy. I didn't realize at the time Jonathan Mover had recommended me for the audition. Um, but, and, then, and that's how, you know, and, and then 
the, the drummer, Jeff Campitelli, who was playing, it was going to be a double drum thing with Jeff and I, and I didn't know that. Jeff told me later, he said, no, you had the gig, which you did. I said, well, I didn't, he didn't tell me that. He said it was me and the other guy. So I just kind of declined because I didn't want to audition. But at um, any rate, but point being, that was, a, that was a pivotal point for me because I stayed home for four years and watched my son go through high school. So that's what you might not have known. We did break up, and that happened. And I had this roofing company. I loved it. I worked really hard. I've always worked hard since I was a kid. I've just been that way, I'm wired that way. I, yeah, I take that addiction, you know, and I just put it into something else. <laughs> I put it into good stuff now. Um, but, uh, yeah. Those were great years, you know. I, I did do a Japan tour with Eric Martin. My son was 15, and I brought my son with me to Japan for three weeks. So, but I did. I got to stay until, you know, he graduated. So, um, so it wasn't like just one 30-year run. I mean, we did have a break. Right. That's all. Wow, man. You know, this hour flew. You know, we've been talking for an hour. This is, uh... Yeah. This has been great. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed this. And uh, now you have to give uh, you have to give all the uh, info to the listeners because you, you spell your name because you know we can say Luketa but it's spelled differently. Tell everyone all your info your if your 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 website. What's your new website? Well, it's TroyLuketa dot net. Troy T R O Y L U C C K E T T A dot net. Somebody stole my .com, so I have a .net. That's with me, too, for, to for Cooper Talk. I, I, I'm coopertalk.net because someone's got my .com, and they want to sell it to me for like $5,000. Yeah, they want to do that. So I didn't even bother with that. But the, the thing about my website, it's a work in progress, but it's something up. People can learn more about me, what I'm doing. You will see that thing improve throughout the year. We're going to do all the backstories on all of it. It's going to be really nice when I get it all flushed out, but... Anyway, that's happening. The other thing I, that we didn't talk about, I have a wellness site, a songforwellness.org, A-S-O-N-G, the number four, wellness, W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S, dot O-R-G, a songforwellness.org. It's, um, um, so there's that as well you could check out. And that's based on the, you know, the fact that we have so many uh, people getting sick and with disease and cancer and that. It's based on a lot of pH stuff, which is pH, just think of a layman's term, a fish tank. If the pH isn't right, the fish die. Our bodies are comprised of 75% water. It's the same thing. So what's happened is we've polluted our bodies with all the GMOs, all the toxins, and all the stuff that's out there. And that's why we have such a high rate. So it's information on getting well and staying well. Cool. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on, Troy. So people, check out all those websites. Follow him. Check him out. Go put on YouTube. Watch some Tesla. Learn about Tesla because, you know, they're bringing him back to the forefront. And, you know, Elon Musk is there, but these guys are before Elon Musk. And people follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk, at Cooper Talk on Twitter. I tweet all the time. I have fun. Tweet at me. I go to coopertalk.net. I have 596 or 7 episodes posted. You can email me at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website, uh, stopthesalt.com. It's my cookbook, Low Sodium Cooking for One Without Killing Yourself. When I have my health problems, I wrote the cookbook, 120 easy recipes, no pictures to intimidate you, no long list of ingredients. You can get it at amazon.com, but if you buy it from stopthesalt.com, I make more money. 
But yeah, I tell you guys that a week and, and you still buy it from Amazon. Anyway, so please check out Tesla, check out Troy, check out his websites. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.